I think a lot of people tend to combine and conflate multiple terms into one thing, you know, so we have immigration, we have asylum seekers, we have people here on student visas, we have refugees. There's so many ways to come into this country. And so I think it's important that people realize that when we're talking about refugees specifically, these are people who are fleeing an unsafe place. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Today on the show, I'm talking with Sean Smucker, my dear friend and author of the book, Once We Were Strangers, What Friendship with a Syrian Refugee Taught Me About Loving My Neighbor. I loved Sean's book, and I had lots of questions for him about refugees and what he has learned through getting to know a Syrian refugee. I think if you're like me and you've got questions, you're going to love this conversation. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. It's really, I, it's just such an honor to be here. Thank you. I am so glad you said yes to this interview. I'm just really excited. So why don't you go ahead and start with who you are and what you do? Okay. So my name is Sean Smucker. I'm a full-time writer. I make a living co-writing and ghostwriting books um, for publishers and also for individuals who want to self-publish. And in the last few years, I started writing my own books. So my first was a YA novel called The Day the Angels Fell, and then the sequel to that was The Edge of Over There. And one of your books won a special award, right? Yeah, so The Day the Angels Fell won um, the book award from Christianity Today for 2018, I think, Uh, and it was the children and youth category. And then recently it was also nominated for a Christie Award for their visionary category. God, that is so awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. That just makes me so happy for you. (laughs) Okay. Well, I love, love, love your book, Once We Were Strangers. I read it in one sitting, I think like two days ago, and I have all these like underlines and and circles and questions. And you had me looking up like the refugee camp and all of these things, just totally interested. And the first question that I have for you is, what is it that got you interested in refugees and seeking to get involved with refugees who had settled in your hometown? Yeah, you know, I think like a lot of people, I was seeing the images from Syria that were coming through in, you know, around 2015, 2016, and it was just horrific. And I think it was, you know, I still remember one of the specific images, which you might remember as well, was of the little boy in the back of the ambulance. Um, and he was just sitting there totally covered in white dust, except for where he was bleeding from his head. But the thing that impacted me the most was his eyes because he was just blankly staring from the back of this ambulance as if nothing was happening, you know? And so later to read more of his story and to hear that, uh, church world service here in Lancaster, uh, you know, they were, they, they continue to do a lot of work with refugees. Uh, Lancaster actually resettles more refugees per capita than any other part of the United States. So we have a, a huge history of refugee resettlement here. And I just kind of jumped on board with them as much as I could. I started doing, um, uh, interviews for my, for my blog. I did some, um, just quick write-ups on some of the refugees who had come here, some asylum seekers. And it really kind of got me more and more interested in, in that whole topic. How did you find out about Christian world services? Did you just Google it? Did you ask friends? Had you always known about it? Like, how did you actually find them? And then did you just walk in and we're like, hi, can I help? Like, how did that, what did that look like? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I, I think they came on my radar through one of my friends, but I can't remember who it would have been. They have a huge presence here. in Lancaster. they're always having events and, 
gatherings and celebrations. And so, uh, you know, I heard about the work that they were doing and I think I just got in touch with them and got sort of funneled to Stephanie, one of the main folks there. And she was really eager to connect me with refugees so that I could, you know, write up these, these little spotlights on them. And that's, that was kind of what, what got us moving forward. met your now friend, Muhammad, and I'm wondering, um, can you tell us, you know, how exactly you met, what that looked like, and why you wanted to write his story in a book, or if that was even the original intention? Yeah, you know, originally I wanted to, I saw the stuff going on in Syria, and so I called CWS and said, look, I would love to help somehow to tell the stories of any Syrian refugees who are coming to our city. And so at first they said, well, we don't have very many there because it takes years, you know, to get through the refugee system takes years. It takes years. And so, um, normally CWS will only start to see particular nationalities three or four or five years after the conflicts have already taken place. So, um, you know, this thing in Syria started around 2012 it was the summer of 2016, I think, uh, when I was doing this. And so they were just starting to get their first round of Syrians coming over. Um, and so I eventually they pointed me to Muhammad. They said, hey, yeah, we could introduce you to this family. They just came over a few months ago. I think this was August or September. And so I went in, um, went into their office, and Stephanie took me back to a little meeting area. And Muhammad came in. And <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Muhammad came in and he was, um, he was just the most meek and kind person I've ever met. He came in and he shook my hand, you know, with both hands, he was very eager to meet me and we sat down and I had arranged, uh, to have someone there. Um, oh my gosh. Translator. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what was his um, name? Bilal or yeah, something? Bilal was there. Yeah. And I've become friends with him also in the meantime, but he was great. And so, and so we were going through this translation process and I'll never forget, um, because at that point I was really just interested in meeting Muhammad one and two, maybe writing a profile about him. I didn't, you know, a book was kind of on the very distant horizon as a possibility, but I didn't have a contract. I didn't even really have an idea necessarily. So we met up and I, and I told Muhammad at that time, I said, you know, I, there might be a chance that we can write a book, but you know, it's very difficult to get contracts these days with publishing houses for a variety of reasons. And so there's a real, you know, there's a real, a real chance that nothing will come of this meeting. And I remember using those words, nothing will come of this meeting. And Muhammad replied to me through the translator. And then Bilal looked at me and he said, Oh, he said, Muhammad has said, there's no chance that nothing will come of this meeting because you're friends now. And it just absolutely floored me that someone who, you know, many of my friends, many of my relatives would be inherently afraid of because of his religion as a Muslim um, was so willing to accept me immediately as a friend and to call me a friend. And that, that really set the stage for, you know, the coming months and years as we became closer friends and then started working together on the story. Yeah. I, I was struck as I read your book, just how much he was like, no, Sean, stay, stay longer. Don't leave. Like just this sweet, hospitable man, just always wanting you to be there and to spend more time and how I think in their culture, you had said that they will spend hours just drinking coffee together. And, and that's the way it is. It's not this isolationist uh, situation that we kind of have here, but people will just spend hours together. Yeah. They, you know, that was the, the, he was always asking me, what, where do we go to, to, to sit with everyone? Like where, you know, where is everybody at? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, to, to try and explain to him, well, you know, I have to work. My friends are all working. Uh, you know, we're busy with school activities. We're taking our kids here, there and everywhere. And he, you know, he would always say, well, someday I am going to organize 
a meeting and everyone will come and have coffee together. And then he would laugh and he would say, but Marathi, that's his wife. He would say, you know, Marathi, she laughs at me because she says, Americans don't want that Muhammad. Americans don't want that. And, you know, sad, uh, sadly to say, I think it's true. I don't, I don't think we're really looking for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I think somewhere inside of us, we're looking for it, but we just think, well, we just don't have the time because, you know, we're tired and we're doing all these other things. And, but, you know, somewhere, somewhere in us, we do, we want that connection. We want that longing. I want to go back a minute. Um, when you were saying you were talking to Muhammad and, and you said, I don't know if anything will come of this. And I loved his response to you, which I thought, so beautiful. Was he eager to tell his story? Like, did he want you to communicate to people his story? Yes, he did. He was, he was very eager from the beginning. And even before I started working with him, he was interviewed by the BBC. Um, and so his story was, you know, pretty widely shared online. Uh, any chance that he had with CWS, uh, they had, they had set up um, like a meet and greet for the community to come in and, and interact with some of the various cultures who they were welcoming over. Mm-hmm. And he represented the Syrians, you know, he, he sort of manned the Syrian booth and was, was, and because Syria was at the forefront of the news at that point, um, you know, when they had this event, there were reporter, there was reporter after reporter after reporter coming to speak with him. So he has, he has really shared his story a lot, even before I came along. And that was something that was important to me as well, because, you know, I mean, I find stories to be extremely valuable and, and, and they can be one of the most powerful ways to communicate various things to people. But I'm also really sensitive about, you know, sort of taking someone else's story and using it. Um, and, and the thing that the only way that I could be comfortable doing this book was knowing how eager Muhammad is to share his story. So, mm. and why do you think he is so eager to share his story? Has he expressed that reason to you? I mean, I don't know if I've asked him that question directly, but it, it feels to me like he wants people to know why he's here almost almost as a way of saying, look, I'm, I don't know if I'm sorry is the right word, but I'm here because I had to come, you know, I'm here because I had to leave. Um, and this is what we've been through. You know, this is, this is the journey that my family has taken. Um, and I'm not sure that he shares that with any sort of deep motives other than wanting to connect, you know, and wanting to, to create, or to become part of a community here. I, I love that. And just, we do, we connect through our stories, right? And so here, that's what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and that actually reminds me, you opened the book with this quote from Warsan Shire, I think, Shire, is how you say it? Um, and she says, no one leaves home unless home is in the mouth of the shark or in the mouth of a shark. And then to echo that sentiment, Muhammad tells you in the book, he says, I love Syria. No one ever wants to leave their home, but we had no choice. And, you know, you and I both know in the news, it's such a politically charged issue, the whole um, refugee situation and there's headlines and there's sides and there's all of these things and there's so much fear tangled up in all of it and it is complicated and it's confusing and I just think that being able to hear people's stories um, helps us to lose some of that fear to really meet people to get our hands in the dirt and I love that you have done that with Muhammad. And so I have two questions for you. The first one is one of the fears that we have is, um, you know, we're going to have all these terrorists coming into our country and, you know, all of that might be true. And you address that in the book. But what have you learned about the process of a refugee coming into the United States? Like, what does that look like and how difficult is it? Yeah. So I think it's really important. I think a lot of people tend to combine and conflate multiple terms into one thing, you know, so we Mm -hmm. have, 
immigration, we have asylum seekers, we have people here on student visas, we have refugees. There's so many ways to come into this country. And so I think it's important that people realize that when we're talking about refugees specifically, these are people who are fleeing an unsafe place. Um, so they, for one reason or another, have have left their country. And normally what happens is they, they gravitate or are taken to refugee camps, which are situated all around these sort of hotbed areas. And that's where they end up living. And, you know, I, I heard a stat recently that the average person in a refugee camp has been there for well over a decade. So people are in these camps, living in these camps with really nowhere to go. They can't go home. It's not an option. The country that the refugee camp is in normally, you know, is already full to the brim with refugees and can't take any more into their normal population. So they live in these camps for ages and ages. Um, now, even if you can begin the process of coming to the West, uh, it's important to realize that, that they cannot pick the country that they're going to go to. Um, that's usually determined by an organization within the UN, um, unless they have a family member or someone living in a country. Otherwise, they can't choose where they're going to go exactly. Um, and the process takes usually you know, bet- between a very minimum of two to three years, usually up to four to five years um, for a refugee to be processed. So for Muhammad, that looked like multiple, multiple interviews. Um, he, first, he went in to be interviewed. And I believe first he was interviewed by a UN organization. Then he went in again a couple months later. He was organized by the Department of Homeland Security. Then he went in a couple months after that and was interviewed by, I don't know if it was the NSA or another security agency in the U.S. And every time he would go, they would ask him, you know, who are you related to? List out your brothers and sisters, of which he has like 15. So even his brothers and sisters, it's hard for him to remember all of their names, middle names, birth dates, <laughs> That was so funny, by the yeah. way, in the book. Yeah. So that's a challenge. And then even, you know, who are you friends with? And they, and they cross-check all the names of his siblings, all the names of his friends, all the names of his, you know, contacts with these terror lists. And so if anyone even has a, you know, the same name, a similar name, I mean, it becomes very, very difficult to come over. While all those interviews are going on, you're, you're receiving physicals, vaccinations, um, and those physicals can time out. So if the other interviews take too long, you might have to go back and get another physical. I mean, the, the amount of paperwork and checks and security clearances that go into vetting a refugee who's coming to the U.S. is, is quite frankly, overwhelming. So speaking of that process, which is very helpful to begin to even try and understand, actually, just out of curiosity, do you know, Sean, how many refugees that the United States is taking in a year? I think this was just changed, and I honestly don't know the answer. Yeah, so this was just lowered to, I believe it was 30,000, which is the lowest it has been since we started this refugee program, I think, in 81. Um, most of the time throughout the last 30, almost 40 years now, um, we've brought in closer to a hundred thousand refugees, usually 90 to a hundred thousand. Okay. Um, it was at 70,000 for the last eight years or so. And then the new administration lowered that to about 30,000. Now that's the ceiling. So in, in, in all actuality, I think this fiscal year, which ended recently, I believe we only brought in maybe around 20,000 refugees. Um, so the, the numbers are very, very low right now. And that has a huge impact on the agencies who are resettling. I know CWS has had to really downsize their workforce um, because there just aren't the numbers coming in that there used to be. There used to be. Um, and it has a huge impact on you know, even Muhammad. So his, his father died in the spring. He would love for his mom to come over, but with the travel ban and the lowered numbers, it's very unlikely that, that she'll be able to make the move over here. So she's currently living alone in Syria, um, trying to figure out what to do next. And I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do you know globally how many approximately refugees there are? Because when people hear 70,000, 100,000, 30,000, I mean, that sounds like an enormous amount of people. Do you have any idea what, what those numbers are like? I should know that. I think um, there are over 60 million 
refugees in the world. About half of them are under 18. Wow. Uh, And in Syria, I believe Syria has sent out, uh, Syria alone has sent out, I think around 6 million. That those numbers just blow my mind. Yeah, it's, you know, it's such a huge, huge issue. And there are multiple ways that we need to be addressing it. I think, you know, we obviously cannot take in every refugee in the world that that wouldn't work. I think we need to take in more than we currently are because we've proven that we can. For decades, we took in almost 100,000. And uh, refugees have never been a uh, involved in any terrorist acts in the United States. So if you look at, you know, 40 years of history, I think that's a pretty convincing statistic. Um, but there are also things that we can do overseas. You look at organizations like preemptive love, you know, who are, who are actively providing aid. And that's the kind of aid that can sometimes sort of span the difficult years. So people don't have to flee their country. So, uh, you know, there are different sides to the issue. Okay, and when a refugee comes to the country, are they here for good, or do they ever get to return to their homes? Most of them, I be, now I don't know this for sure, but from what I understand, most of them stay here. So uh, Muhammad and his family all recently got their green cards. I would imagine, you know, whatever the time frame is like, they will attempt to become citizens. They currently live in Michigan. Um, for them, there's really nothing to go back to. The village that they left is uh, mostly abandoned. Um, so even if the violence in Syria does come to an end, there would really be very little for them to go back to. Did you just say that Muhammad lives in Michigan? Yes. Oh, he moved. Yeah, he moved, um, let's see, in May of this year. So that was hard. He he decided there's a very large population of Middle Eastern people who live in Michigan. And uh, he had a contact up there. He was having some trouble finding work here and got kind of antsy. And so they made the move up there. And they, they've been up there for what, I guess, five or six months now. So we miss them a lot. Okay. Did he finally get some land? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, I just, that was so sweet all throughout the... <laughs> You know, he's like, I just want some land. <laughs> you know, that was the thing. That was one of the big things that impacted me about hanging out with Muhammad. So I think in my mind, I had just always sort of envisioned refugees as coming from the city. And I don't know why, just in my head, I sort of figured there are people who are fleeing violent, you know, cities and they're coming here. And so why wouldn't they want to live in the city? And then I meet Muhammad and here's a guy who grew up in the country his whole life. And, you know, his, his life was not, he was not exposed to violence. And that's another myth that was, that I had to really work through was this idea of Middle Eastern people growing up in this atmosphere of continual violence. Um, his life was completely peaceful, you know, like he's, he's a little older than me, mid forties and never lived through a war, never saw anyone get shot, never, you know, was around a car bomb going off. This is not part of his reality at all. Um, and then this war comes along and, you know, he didn't know what else to do. And I think, what would I do? That's just like my life, right? So what if, what if violence or conflict would break out here in Pennsylvania? Where would I go? You know, what would I do? Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting that war, you're right, because there's this idea, like when I think of the Middle East, anywhere in the Middle East, I think, war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's just so ingrained in us. And however, though, there is this interesting uh, comment that Muhammad makes to you. And um, he's sitting with his friend on a porch in Syria in the town where he lives, or I guess the town where he fled to. Um, maybe you can clear that up. And he's him and his friend are drinking coffee and they're watching bombs rain down on their town and they're just having this conversation like, Oh, that one hit your house. Oh, I think that one hit my house. And the juxtaposition of drinking coffee and watching bombs hit your house as you talk about it casually seems crazy to me. Yeah. Especially because like, to me, it almost makes sense if that was his life and you just, it like becomes this weird thing that you're accustomed to, but it wasn't his life. And so what, what was that about? 
that they could just sit there and drink their coffee and talk about these bombs hitting their homes. Could you talk to us a little bit about that or what you learned from that? Yeah, yeah. I have a feeling it was something that he became accustomed to over a couple of years' time, you know? So his village, there were people in his village who the government became concerned about because they were trying to break through some of the um, blockades that were put up around particular cities that had high concentrations of rebels. So Mm -hmm. um, because there were people in Muhammad's village, the government would occasionally, sporadically, with no real sort of purpose, um, park around the village and just start raining bombs in. But because there was also government officials in the village, they would tell them, Hey, we're coming, you know, to bomb your village. So get out. So then those government officials would effectively tell everybody else, Hey, they're coming to bomb us, get out. So the whole village would basically flee and the government, the Syrian government would surround the village and bomb it. Um, and then they would leave and then everyone would go back to their house until the next morning, then they would leave. And so, you know, I think that was happening over an extended period of time. And so Muhammad would hop on his motorcycle with his wife and his four kids, all six of them on a motorcycle, and they would leave the village and, and go to a neighboring village, which had sort of a higher, um, higher elevation. And then they would sit and he said from his friend's back patio, they could look down and see the bombs as they fell. And yeah, there was one point where he turned to his friend and he said, oh, I think that was uh, another guy who had come with them. He said, I think that was your house. And his friend turned to him and said, oh, look, that one was close to your house. So um, it, yeah, it, it is a very strange thing, but I think it also shows how quickly life can change um, and how we adapt, you know, as humans, we adapt to yeah. those things. And um, yeah. And yet, and yet, Like, I can't even imagine it. And I think if that were happening here, and you sort of brought that question to mind earlier, like, what would I do? Where would I go? I mean, I would for sure want to take my family and go somewhere safe and do anything that I could do to get somewhere where my family, especially my children, could be safe. And it makes me think of the journey that Muhammad had to take. It wasn't just that he, you know, saw these bombs in his town and, and he knew he needed to get his family safe. It, you know, it wasn't just a matter of him walking to a, you know, a, what do you call those? Um, an embassy, right? Like, it's not like he just walked into some embassy and like started the paperwork to go somewhere. I mean, they had a pretty intense journey. Could you just give us a couple highlights of that journey? Yeah, you know, when we were here in uh, in Lancaster at one of the events that CWS did, they had a little booth up, and on the booth they had sort of uh, various household items. And the question on the table was, what would you take with you? And there was a phone, and there was a bottle of water, and, you know, there was some canned food and things like that. And I turned to look at Muhammad, and I said, what did you take you know, like what, what did you guys decide to take when you fled? And he said, nothing. (laughs) He said, we took nothing. And, and really all they did take were backpacks full of water, um, backpacks full of food. And, you know, it struck me, how do you decide as a parent, how much weight a child can carry in a backpack? You know, um, they were going to have to take a bus to a village and then a taxi from that village basically to the southern border of Syria as far as the roads went. And then there was a 20-mile wilderness they had to walk through to get into Jordan. And I just thought to myself, you know, how much could my 15-year-old carry? How much water could my 9-year-old carry? Who would carry the baby? You know, and those are the kinds of questions that that he had to ask. And so you know, they, they formed a small group. There were other Syrians who were leaving at the same time. They met at the southernmost point and, and they had, they paid a guide and the guide led them through the wilderness. And there were times where they had to stop and get down and hide. And, you know, you have babies crying and people trying to keep them quiet. And then they would get up and continue walking. And eventually the Jordanian army found them and they were very friendly and, and took them to, uh, Zatari. But, I, yeah, I just, I can't help but put myself in his position and think through those details, you know, like, what are we going to take? Um, we're going to take our phones. Okay. Can we take, do we take our birth certificates? You know, are there any books that we would take? Probably not. Um, you know, you just think through all these things that we've accumulated 
and and how would you decide? And you don't even know where you're going to end up. I mean, you have an idea, but really at the end of the day, you have no idea what is going to happen or where you're going to end up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this uh, kind of switching gears here, there is a really interesting and tender story that you share with Muhammad with his sons. And it is, he says a word, like you're not understanding his language. And then there's this word that keeps coming up that you begin to understand. Do you know the story I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. Can you share that story? I love this. Yeah. So, so soon after, well, not soon after, probably a year after Muhammad and I had, had become friends and, and started spending time together. I, I came by his house one night, I was Ubering, uh, and I, I was in the neighborhood. So I stopped by to say hello. And as I came in, he said, Oh, Sean, Sean, it was kind of like, great, perfect timing. Right. Like he said, could you just sit and wait? I have to go pick up my wife at, at where she's working. So I hung out with the four boys while he ran out and, uh, we just, you know, kind of joked around and laughed and they told me about school and stuff. And then when he came back, um, he sat down and his wife, Marati went up to bed and their youngest, who was probably five or six, uh, came running over to Muhammad and climbed up onto his lap. And I could tell he was, he was trying to, I don't know, he was trying to get his way on something. Like you could tell there was some kind of argument either about the computer or the TV or something they were playing with. And so he was sort of pleading his case, the little boy, and he would talk like he would put his face (laughs) right up against Muhammad's cheek as he was talking and just like, la 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 la, you know, just talking, 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 right. Reminded me so much of my four-year-old. And (laughs) as he's talking, Muhammad's talking to me, we're having a conversation and every once in a while, Muhammad would turn and look at him so that their faces were like, their noses were literally smushed up against each other. And his son is arguing, uh, you know, and Muhammad's arguing back uh, and, and all in Arabic. And then suddenly I hear his son use this word in like a pleading tone, like, Oh, come on, you got to listen to me. And it was, it was Abba. And and I heard it over and over again, Abba, Abba, like, you know, please, please. And it just struck me that I had never heard that word used in its, like, in real life context, you know? Like, Abba is the word that Jesus talks about um, when he prays to God. And it was so amazing to everyone around Jesus that he would use such a familiar term when referring to, to our Heavenly Father, Abba. And now here there was this six-year-old Muslim Syrian refugee in his father's face pleading his case, Abba, Abba. And it just, oh man, it just really hit me. It was, it was, I kind of felt like I was having an out-of-body experience watching them, uh, Mm -hmm. just watching them interact and how tender they were with each other and how, you know, Muhammad wasn't pushing him away. He wasn't giving him what he wanted, <laughs> but he wasn't mm-hmm. pushing him away. And he was just letting him fill that space and nose to nose, Abba, Abba. I just love that. I love that. That's like one of my favorite stories in the book because yeah. just to watch in real life, like what Jesus was talking about, about a father and child relationship. And then you're mm. watching this. I just, I, it actually brings tears to my eyes because I'm like, it's just so sweet and beautiful and wonderful. And I love it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was just right there. Like you said, right there in front mm. of me and the tenderness of Muhammad really came through. And once again, I just thought, Oh, the stereotypes, mm. you know, Oh, these, these ways that we think about other humans, these fears that we have, how wrong they are, how off base they are, how far from the truth they are. You know, like we, we see one act of violence and then we are ready to, to, to say that the other 1.3 billion people who practice that religion are violent. You know, people who pray five times every day, people who pray for peace literally every day. Um, and yet we're terrified of them. I heard a quote from, I'm going to butcher his last name. I think it's like Brian Zond or Zahad or... Zond, yeah. Mm-hmm. Zond, okay. I heard a quote from Brian Zond and he says, an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard yet. Hmm. And I love that because, 
it's just, it's so easy for us as humans, like our human nature to put people into groups and to be afraid. And and sometimes we have very real reasons to be afraid. I mean, mm. but to get face to face with somebody and hear their story or read their story, there's something so powerful and so significant about that where it's almost as if we could hear each other's stories. There would be no enemies. I mean, there would because we live in this fallen world, but I love the sentiment of that and the hope of that. Yeah, no, I totally, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there was a, there was a moment where, um, and I've, I've spent some time in the Middle East, you know, I, I went to Turkey to write a book, uh, for a gentleman over there. I was in Iraq last year for a week. Um, so I, I've, I haven't lived there for long periods of time, but I visited. But one night I went into Muhammad's house and it was during Ramadan and I sat down, they eat on the floor around a, like a, a plastic sheet and we sat down and it was covered with the most delicious food. And they stopped for a moment to listen to prayers that were, they were playing over their cell phone. Um, and for a moment, you know, when I heard the, the sort of, um, the Arabic chanting and the prayers, it's easy to get a, a particular feeling about that because of how that is all presented to us in the media um, and by people who would prefer that we were afraid of each other. But then the longer that I sat there and watched them just sort of waiting for this prayer to come and go, um, you know, I saw Muhammad sitting there with his wife, Maradi and their four children. And one of the boys had gotten up to make space for me. So he was standing in the kitchen and, uh, you know, they hadn't had any water or food all day long because, um, that's during Ramadan, you don't eat or drink during daylight hours. And they had all left, uh, they had all left for school and work before the sun had come up. So, uh, because it was shorter days. So they, you know, they hadn't eaten or had anything to drink all day. The boys are drinking soda, which was clearly a treat during that time. And I'm just thinking, wow, they, they just want to live a peaceful life. You know, they, Muhammad wants to have a good work, a good job, a place where he can work and make money to support his family. Maradi, the same thing. She wants to find a place where she can, where she can earn a living. Uh, they want their boys to go to school. They want their boys to have a good life, to get educated, to go to college, to get good jobs. Like they want everything that I want. And it seems like we should be able to figure out how to live side by side you know, when, when all that we want really is the same thing. Yeah. I don't know if what I'm about to ask you, I'm going to keep in the interview, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious. Yeah. So I wonder, did anything about, um, like sort of the, the militant side of Islam come up between you and Muhammad and what are their views on it? Like I'm thinking, you know, I think of Westboro Baptist Church, right? And how I'm like, oh, cringe, like, no, don't listen to them. And even though they may not be militant, they're certainly, you know, on the fringe of what I would say, you know, is what Jesus wants from us. Sure, yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, how does someone like Muhammad and his family who are peaceful people, um, how do they view the sort of extremism that we see in the news? What and quite frankly, that um, people who are doing terrorist acts and awful things. Like, how did did he ever express to you like how like oh this is so frustrating or like I don't know like was there any talk of any of that? Yeah, so we had a conversation one time about. Um, I just asked him what it was like where he grew up as far as you know, what were the different sects of, of Muslim that, or of Islam that, that were practiced in his village? And, you know, was there conflict between those different people and that sort of thing? And he expressed a lot of sadness that the war, it seems, uh, the recent war in Syria had really caused people to turn against each other. So he was saying that in his village of Dara, um, before the war, he said he didn't know who was Sunni. He didn't know. He didn't even necessarily know walking down the street who was Christian. He didn't know what religion people were. They just lived together. And he said after the war started, then you knew. Then you started to realize, oh, this person is that, and this person is that, and this is a Christian village, um, and this is a, you know. And, and he said that that was really disappointing for him because 
I think in the midst of that conflict, people, people did start to turn on each other because they were afraid they wanted, you know, they were afraid that they were going to lose what they had. And, um, so I think for him, that was, Mm -hmm. that was one of the hardest parts of, of the war was realizing that, um, you know, people would turn on you based on your beliefs. Um, you know, even, even within, even within Islam, um, so yeah, I mean he he's he seemed to be a very a very progressive thinker as far as religion goes. He was not um he never he never spoke about Islam in like a forceful way. I would ask him questions and his answers were always very gracious and loving. And yeah, I was I was just always uh, he really put my mind at ease when we would talk about those things. And I, I imagine for him um, being here, like his sons had experienced a little bit of bullying in the classroom, I'm assuming because of their, of them being Muslim. Is that right? That's the, that's, yeah, that's the picture that I got. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I would imagine it would be frustrating. Like, yes, there are people who are doing these fringe extremist things, but this is not all of us. Like this is not, you know, who all of us are, who we all are. That would be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, it, 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 and when Miley and I moved to England, we lived there for four years. Um, we experienced just the tiniest bit of that when people realized we were American, you know, based on, uh, whatever America happened to be doing at that time, if they approved of it or not, uh, we would either be welcomed in with open arms or you could just feel people cool off towards you as they realized, you know, where you were from. And, yeah, I mean that's that's not a fun way to live, you know. When you're when people look at you and just immediately think that they know who you are, what you believe, what you stand for. Okay, so this is just sort of a fun question, but what was something surprising that you learned from Muhammad, either about his own his home country or being a refugee, or just I don't know about him in general? What was something surprising? that you learned that you just didn't know before? Hmm, That's a good question. Um, I think I was surprised by what we talked about a little bit earlier. I was surprised by how much he wanted to move into the country. Um, He desperately wanted to have a little bit of land for a garden. And he even started gardening outside of his little duplex uh, here in the city, planting flowers and, you know, tomato plants and things like that. The food that he would look for was always so interesting to me. And we would have to use, you know, uh, Google translator to try and figure out what exactly he was talking about. But so aubergines, like apparently they are huge over there and he was trying to find a place where he could get like 30 or 40 pounds so that he could, you know, make this particular dish and freeze them. Uh, he was always on the lookout for, for like Arabic flatbread. I don't know exactly what the word is for it, but when I would take him into Philadelphia for his dentist appointments, he would always have like another bakery. He wanted to drive by to see what the prices were on their flatbread. And sometimes he would come out with, you know, I don't know, 10 to 15 of these huge packages that we'd load into the car bread that would last him for months. Um, so it was, it was interesting to see, how he was adjusting to life in America and, you know, just sort of the lengths that he would go to try and maintain some of that, uh, Syrian lifestyle, you know, the Syrian food and, and all that sort of stuff. That was, that was really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the subtitle of your book is what friendship with a Syrian refugee taught me about loving your neighbor. So I'm going to ask you that question, but First, I want to read this passage. You, you open your book uh, with Luke 10, 25 to 29, and it says, One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And 
all throughout your book, you add these passages of scripture that have to do with foreigners and neighbors and loving them. So, of course, now I'm going to ask you the question, what have you learned about loving your neighbor through your relationship with Muhammad? Hmm. I, I've come away with one really huge takeaway, and it's something that I that I can't stop thinking and talking about. And it kind of goes back to a book that I read um, last year or the year before by Steve Weens called Whole. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in that book, he really encourages that when we read scriptures to try and see ourselves in different different characters. So, you know, a lot of times we tend to identify with a particular character in a story, but he challenges us to, to get outside of that and to see, see ourselves in maybe a little bit of a different situation. So when Jesus goes on, um, from that question, uh, when the, when the religious expert asks him, who is my neighbor, Jesus goes on to tell the story of the good Samaritan. And I think, you know, it's pretty standard for us here in America to see ourselves as the good Samaritan, you know, how, how should we, um, how should we contribute? How should we help someone who is hurting someone who needs help? Um, you know, we shouldn't act like the Levite who crossed over the street and kept going. We shouldn't act like the other religious expert who paid him no mind. Um, we should act like the good Samaritan. And so I think I went into this relationship with Muhammad, just assuming, um, I'm the good Samaritan, you know, in this relationship, I need to come in, I need to help him. Um, I need to do whatever I can to make his transition into American life easier. And, and sure, you know, to some extent that was true, but as, as our relationship progressed, um, as we became closer friends and I sort of saw what, uh, what Muhammad had to offer me, as far as helping me to become less fearful, helping me to change my mindset about foreigners and strangers, helping me to uh, become a better friend, which I realize I'm not, um, I don't think I'm a great friend now that I've gotten to know Muhammad and seen what real friendship looks like. Um, I started to realize that maybe, or at least a question, maybe I'm not the good Samaritan in the story. What if Muhammad is the good Samaritan? What if I'm the one who's hurt and lying on the side of the road and, and in need of help? And I think this is really hard for us as Americans to see because we have all the material possessions. We have the safe, the relatively safe country to live in. We have the things that we need. We have food at our, we have, you know, decent education at our disposal. So it's easy to think of ourselves as being the ones who have everything to offer. And I think as I became friends with Muhammad, I started to realize, hold, hold on a second, I do, I do not have everything to offer. And in fact, my Muslim friend here from Syria, who just you know had to flee his country, actually has a lot to offer me. I love that. Talk about flipping the script and seeing something in a whole new way, a whole new perspective. I just, I really love that, Sean. Okay, so as we get close to ending, what encouragement would you give those listening in regard to what you have learned about refugees and with your friendship with Muhammad? Yeah, so I think the first thing that I would say is become a better neighbor. And this is something that I'm growing in all the time. You don't even have to begin with refugees, you know, uh, get to know the names of the people who live next door to you, who live across the street and offer yourself, you know, be willing to be a friend, make time to be a friend, make space. Um, if you're, if you're part of a family, you know, sit down as a family and consciously think about how you're, how you're allocating your time. It's so easy to get swept up into activity after endless activity to the point where we really have no time to interact with people outside of our family unit. And so I think that's the first thing is to think about how you can be a better neighbor just to the people around you. But then, I mean, there are refugees in every city, in every town. And I think, you know, in some ways they blend in really well because they don't want to draw attention. I think, 
especially in these times, there's so much fear to go around. I think there, there, many refugees are concerned about drawing attention. So they blend in really well, and we tend to overlook them. I think as, as white people, it's easy for us to just kind of overlook people of color, the people who live around us. And um, so open your eyes, you know, open your eyes and see, see who you cross paths with on a daily basis. But then after that, you know, I think the, the next level is to really is, is to be more deliberate about it. So connect with organizations like Church World Service. I believe there's an organization called Bethany. There's, um, you know, there's all kinds of, of places that um, are, are resettling refugees and they need all kinds of things. So you don't have to dedicate your life um, initially to a new friendship. You can, you can take someone some furniture or you can take them some food or you can help them get settled in their new house or you can drive them to, um, you know, language classes. Um, one of the biggest needs that I've seen is, uh, a lot of these folks need to get a driver's license, but they don't have anyone who can, who's willing to teach them or to take them to the DMV. So, you know, all of these different, different ways that, that you can help. And I think, if you go into it wanting to help, that's a good place to start. But I would encourage you to stay open um, and to realize that uh, there, there's more there. You know, there's more waiting for you than simply this, um, you know, this sort of I'm here to help you, to rescue you type thing. Oh, that is so good. Okay, Sean, where can people find out more about you and your book? Yeah, so um, just go to seansmucker.com, S-H-A-W-N-S-M-U-C-K-E-R.com. Um, I have my books listed there. Once We Were Strangers is there. The two YA books that I've written are there. And I've got a blog that I don't write on very much anymore, which seems to be the, the popular thing these days. Um, but yeah, so that's that's where you can find me. Perfect. And I will add all of these links and some different resources that we talked about. All of that will be in the show notes. So Sean, thank you so much for talking to us about this issue that seems so complicated, but up close, it's really just about loving our neighbor. So thanks, Sean, for being here. Thanks, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the Complicated Heart Podcast. See you next time.